I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church, and I welcome you to episode 26 in the fourth edition of the AIC Bible study video series, The New Testament Gospels. In this episode, the first of 20, I begin discussion of the Gospel of St. John, the non-synoptic Gospel. In this opening episode, I will discuss the book's authorship, the time and language of its composition, how and when it came into acceptance in the canon of Scripture, its intended audience, John's major and secondary themes, and begin discussion of its unique content, starting with the first five verses. At the end of the episode, I will point out where material in this presentation appears in the new AIC bookstore publication, The Gospel of John, Annotated and Illustrated. The Gospel of St. John is called the non-synoptic gospel because it does not follow the model set by the Gospels of St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke. These three Gospels have similar formats, time frames, and for the most part, content. Several striking differences between the Gospel of St. John and the Synoptics include, first, St. John's choice of starting point. He does not present events in the order in the life of Christ's chronology of the three synoptics. Instead, he begins with creation itself, or in the beginning. Second, he presents his thoughts in a different order than the synoptics. Third, he includes a considerable amount of unique content, much of it taking up several chapters. Fourth and finally, Unlike any of the synoptics, he makes the claim of being a first-person witness to the events he describes. I will elaborate upon these differences throughout the balance of the series. The illustration also used in the series opening title pages is the opening page of the Gospel of St. John, verses 1 through 7a, with the first words in Latin, in principio, or in the beginning, from the Athelstan Gospels, a late 9th, early 10th century Ottonian illumination from Cotton Manuscript Tiberius A, small ii, folio 162R, British Library, London, England. The English name John comes from the Hebrew name Yohanan the literal meaning of which is Yah or Yahweh, has shown favor. The name John is rendered in Koine Greek as Ianos, and in Latin, as in the opening page of the previous slide, Johannes. Note that there is no hard consonant J in ancient Greek or Hebrew, or was there such a letter in first millennium Latin. The J letter in Johannes in the previous illustration represents a Middle Ages change to the Latin alphabet. The illustration, John holding the Codex Aureus of Echternach, is a miniature illumination less than an inch wide in tempera and gilt on parchment from the Codex Aureus of Echternach, a gospel book made at the Monastery of St. Willebrord, Echternach, Germany, now Luxembourg, in the 2nd or 3rd quarter of the 11th century, 
This version from Manuscript Egerton 608, Folio 133V, British Library, London, England, to which I have applied respective correction. The eagle above St. John's head is the traditional symbol of the Apostle John based on Ezekiel's vision of the four living creatures, Ezekiel 1, verses 4 to 10. In this tradition, St. Matthew is represented by a man or an angel, St. Mark as a lion, and St. Luke as an ox. John the Evangelist and Apostle was the youngest son of the Jewish fisherman Zebedee in Greek Zebedaios and his wife Salome. John and his older brother James, called James the Greater to distinguish him from James the Less or James of Jerusalem, were in business with their father as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Their calling as the second pair of brothers to become disciples is described in Matthew 4.21, Mark 1 verses 19 and 20, and Luke 5.10, but is not mentioned by St. John in his gospel. Nor does he follow the synoptic model of discussing the calling of any of the other apostles. I believe it is safe to assume that by the time St. John wrote his gospel, he assumed that the early life of Jesus of Nazareth and the names of the apostles was already well known. The illustration, the calling of St. James and St. John, is a fourth quarter 19th century A.D. opaque watercolor over graphite on gray wove paper, one of a series of scenes in the life of Christ painted by James T. So. St. John is known by several other titles or names. In Mark 3.17, Jesus labeled him, along with his brother James, by the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder for their enthusiasm. He is also called the, quote, beloved disciple, unquote, owing to his own label of himself as the, quote, disciple whom Jesus loved in John 13, 23 and John 21, 7, and a similar label in John 20, verse 2. These examples are discussed in episode 40 in the context of unique details in the Gospel of St. John. In the Eastern Church, he is one of a small number of saints and the only apostle to be known by the title theologian. The illustration is a third quarter 12th century minuscule or miniature illumination in colored inks and gold on parchment for, from the Vorms or Worms in English Bible made in the Middle Rhineland, Germany, from Manuscript Harley 2804, Folio 119, British Library, London, England. As early as the mid-2nd century, the consensus was that John wrote his gospel at Ephesus, where he had taken St. Mary after the crucifixion. St. Irenaeus wrote this around 170 A.D., citing what he was told by St. Polycarp of Smyrna, a contemporary of St. John and a teacher of Irenaeus. 
Thus, through the common connection to St. Polycarp, Irenaeus became the link between the traditions of the Eastern and the Western churches from his position as Bishop of Lyon in south-central France. The illustration, John in the Gate of Ephesus, is a miniature illumination in colors and gold on parchment from the Beatus of Libana, Commentary on the Apocalypse, made at the Benedictine Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain in the fourth quarter of the 10th century from Manuscript Additional 11695, Folio 23V, British Library, London, England. Ephesus was the site of the Third Ecumenical Council, which in 431 A.D. granted St. Mary the title of Theotokos, or God-bearer. In addition to Polycarp, other church figures in the 1st and 2nd centuries who credited the book to John were St. Papias of Hierapolis in the late 1st, early 2nd century, St. Theophilus of Antioch in the late 2nd century, and Justin Martyr of Rome, also late 2nd century, and one of the early martyrs of the church. The illustration is a detail from a 15th century tempera and gilt-on-panel icon for the, from the Vasilyevsky Chin Tretyakov Gallery, Moscow, Russia. The icon, which is the top portion of a full-length figure, was formerly attributed to Andrei Rubilyov. Additional authority for attributing the book to St. John were the Muratorian Canon or Muratorian Fragment, a late 2nd century manuscript which survived in a, survives in a reproduced form from the 7th century. The church historian Eusebius from his Ecclesiastical History in the 4th century and, perhaps more definitively, St. Athanasius of Alexandria in his Easter letter in 300. 67 A.D. The time of its writing is not entirely clear. There are three primary theories of the time. First, around 85 to 90 A.D., when John led the Christian community at Ephesus, leading the Johnine community and before his imprisonment on Patmos. Second, around 95 or 96 A.D., when after the death of Emperor Domitian, St. John was released from imprisonment on Patmos, and after he wrote Revelation around 95 A.D. and his return to Ephesus around 96 A.D. This is the consensus opinion among traditional interpreters, and third and least probable in the waning years of the first century or early years of the second century. Here, I share the Eastern view, Eastern Church view that the book was written around 96 AD. The illustration is a miniature illumination in colors on parchment from an apocalypse or revelation picture book made in Germany in the second or third quarter of the 15th century from manuscript additional 19896, folio 1V, British Library, London, England. In the top image, St. John is preaching in the streets at Ephesus. In the lower image, he is baptizing in what is described as his house while guards try to break in to arrest him. I turn next to the subject of St. John's intended audience. 
Again, the consensus view is that there were two intended audiences. The primary audience was Jews who had not converted to Christianity. This view is supported both by the content of his gospel and also the content of Revelation. In both John's gospel and Revelation, the narrative is filled with either direct references or allusions to Hebrew concepts, traditions, and beliefs in the nature and identity of God. I discussed this aspect of St. John's writing in the AIC Bible Study video series and its companion AIC bookstore publication, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. In both the video series and the book, I explore the Old Testament sources of much of the vivid imagery found in Revelation. The illustration is John holding his gospel, an illumination in colored inks on parchment from the Book of Kells, one of the oldest gospel books produced around 800 A.D. from the Digital Collections Archive at Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland. The second, but by no means secondary, audience was Christians who were persecuted for their belief by the high priests who forced them out of the synagogues where they had been worshiping. The largest group in this second audience was the so-called Johnine community centered at Ephesus, where John had been the equivalent of a bishop at the church he built there. They call themselves Johnine Christians to distinguish themselves from other Christian groups and congregations founded by other apostles, including those founded by St. Paul. The next issue is the language. St. John, raised as a Jew, most likely learned Hebrew as a child. It is clear from both the Gospel of St. John and Revelation that he was not a native speaker of Koine Greek, or New Testament Greek, the everyday language of the average person in the Holy Land in the first century. As I pointed out in the opening episode of the series Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, he knew enough to convey his meaning, even though the language is not the elegant, flowing, literary style of Greek used by St. Luke in St. Luke's own Gospel and in Acts of the Apostles. St. John's choice of words, of place names, of scriptural allusions, and references to Hebrew history reflect his Hebrew background. Other gospel authors similarly used either Hebrew names or Roman names for places to suit their intended audiences. In the Eastern Church tradition, St. John is said to have dictated his thoughts to a scribe, the illustration, John writing his gospel, is a miniature illumination in colors and gold on parchment and an English version in the Carolingian Ottonian style of the revived Holy Roman Empire from the Benedictional of St. Ethelwald, made for the personal use of Ethelwald, who was Bishop of Winchester, England, between 963 and 984 A.D., from Manuscript Additional 49598, Folio 19V, British Library, London, England, to which I applied perspective correction technology. Note the eagle, the traditional symbol of St. John, in the upper right. 
As I have demonstrated in earlier episodes of this series, each of the three synoptic Gospels, those of St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke, offers a common approach and timeline filled out with unique content, including parables and stories of Jesus' miracles and unique themes. But only St. John's Gospel stands out as the unique Gospel or non-synoptic Gospel. This unique gospel book offers readers the first theology of the church. From its opening verses in John 1, 1 1-5, which I will discuss near the end of this episode, the book includes unique content, unique words, unique events, which I will discuss in detail in several later episodes in this series. The illustration... John holding his gospel is an illumination in tempera and gold on vellum with the eagle symbol above his head from the Codex Aureus of Canterbury, one of the oldest known gospel books made in the region of Canterbury, England, then known as South Umbria, around 750 A.D. The book is also known as the Stockholm Codex Aureus, owing to its curious and complicated history. The original was stolen by Viking raiders in southeast England in the 10th century and was ransomed a century later from the Vikings by residents of Canterbury. Its whereabouts for the next half millennium after the repurchase is not known. It next appears in the ownership of a collector in Spain in the 14th and 15th century. It was acquired by the Swedish royal envoy to Spain around 1690 A.D. and was later donated to the Swedish Royal Library in Stockholm in 1705 A.D. Before I begin discussion of the unique content, words, and events in the Gospel of St. John, I suggest that the most enriching study of the Gospel of St. John requires certain understandings. First, St. John's strong spirituality, which is even more evident in the book of Revelation. He is not seeking to teach historical facts, but instead teach understandings of the origin and nature of Jesus Christ. Second, given that he most likely dictated his gospel, as he did Revelation, to a scribe, you should read it slowly and hear his words just as if he were present and speaking directly to you. Let me put that idea into the context of fine dining or wine drinking. St. John's words should be savored, drawing out all the meaning of the words and their nuances, phrases, allusions to Hebrew history, and references to places that had great spiritual meaning for the Hebrew people at the end of the first century. Third and finally, consider how the modern revisionists view St. John's Gospel, Three Epistles and Revelation, and consider their intentions. Some have suggested John was a deranged old man with a faulty memory. I suggest to you that the vigor with which they attack St. John reflects how seriously they take the spiritual meaning of all his writings. The desire of many, if not most of them, 
is to remove John's work from the Christian canon in favor of the use of only those words in Scripture which are common to the three synoptic Gospels. If they can discredit John, they can call into question many traditional Christian doctrines which were developed largely or exclusively out of the writings of St. John. The divinity of Jesus, the acceptance of Jesus as the only path to the Father, the sacrament of marriage between one man and one woman, and the importance of the Holy Spirit in the Christian sacrament of baptism. For this series on the Gospel of St. John, the approach and the objective will be different, just as the book itself represents a different approach to the problem of telling the story of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. First, my focus will be on St. John's single major theme, which is what makes his gospel the theological gospel, that is, the nature, origin, and purpose of the incarnation, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second, how he ties his secondary themes together into that single theme. And third, to help readers understand why it is necessary to reject the revisionist interpretation. And finally, to share what I believe are valuable insights into St. John's Gospel based upon the Eastern Church tradition, most of which is not widely understood in the Western Church. The illustration, John Dictating Revelation, is a detail from a 15th century Italian fresco in the Greek Byzantine style at Mount Athos, Greece. In the balance of this series, I focus upon seven secondary thematic threads woven by St. John into his Gospel. First, the divinity of Jesus Christ and his incarnation as the Son of the Almighty God. He will demonstrate this vividly in his focus on the seven signs and in the I Am declarations. Second, his connection of the Jesus of his day directly with the Genesis account of creation through the, his unique in-the-beginning verse. And third, his focus on events primarily in Judea and Jerusalem instead of in the Galilee as in the Synoptics. Fourth, the humanity of Jesus, demonstrated by his words and his actions. Fifth, his use of comparisons, light versus dark, good versus evil, life versus death, truth versus falsehood. Sixth, the coming of Jesus Christ as the basis of a new religion. Seventh, and finally, based on the interpretation of Father John Baer in his landmark work, The Way to Nicaea, Jesus says both the revealer and the revealed. St. John had the advantage of timing, being the last to write a canonical gospel. The last of the synoptics is thought to be the Gospel of St. Luke, with the last date of its writing traditionally being said to be around 85 AD, around the same time that John led the church that developed at Ephesus and before he was imprisoned on Patmos by the emperor Domitian. 
where the three synoptic gospel authors considered the life and teachings of Jesus as a series of episodes beginning with his baptism by John the Baptist, with the exception of St. Luke, who took the story back to before the Incarnation, introducing the pre-nativity stories of Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and his childhood encounter in the temple, which I discuss in episode 12 through episode 15, and only later demonstrating who Jesus is and where he came from. In his unique gospel, St. John broke the mold with his opening verses in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. I will discuss verses 1 through 5 in this episode and continue the discussion in episode 27. In musical terms, his opening five verses are the equivalent of an orchestral prelude, also evidence of his knowledge of Hebrew scripture. He begins with a breathtaking statement in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Latin text shown in the illustration from a late 9th, early 10th century Bible from the Ottonian successors to Charlemagne in the revived Holy Roman Empire in Western Europe, in the beginning is in principio. In Greek, the word, word comes from logos and God from theos, literally meaning the one who sees. Following the style of Hebrew couplets most evident in the book of Psalms, St. John continues in verse 2 with an expansion on his interpretation from verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. The Old Testament parallel is the opening words of Genesis, in the beginning. The theological lesson continues in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 3 was a basis for the statement about Jesus Christ, by whom all things were made, in the opening paragraph of the Nicene Creed, written at the First Ecumenical Council in 325 A.D. during the reign of the first Christian emperor, Constantine. The illustration is a detail of Christ setting the moon and the stars from the creation mosaic in the Dome of the Creation in St. Mark's Basilica, Venice, Italy, begun in the 10th century and completed over the next several centuries. The basilica, named after the patron saint of Venice, Mark the Apostle, and evangelist is one of the finest examples of Byzantine architecture in Europe. Then St. John expresses in verse 4 another theme which runs throughout his account and which he will further illustrate in his account of Jesus' several I Am declarations found only in the Gospel of St. John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again following the Hebrew couplet style of teaching, he clarifies and elaborates in verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I will continue this discussion focusing on the meaning of the words in episode 27. 
Other AIC resources on topics discussed in this episode are the AIC Christian Education video series, The Lives of the Saints, from the first series on the 1928 Book of Common Prayer Saints, St. John is the focus of episode 4, St. Mark of episode 7, St. James of episode 12, St. Matthew of 14, and St. Luke of 15. From the AIC Christian Education video series, The Nicene Creed, the portion concerning Jesus as the one by whom all things were made is discussed in episode 5. From the AIC Bookstore Publications, in the Gospel of John, annotated and illustrated, subjects discussed in this episode are found in the preface in the section called John and His Gospel, and the text box on page 11, A Guide to Reading the Gospel of John. The cover illustration is an illumination in tempera and gold on parchment from the Pericope Book of Henry II, produced between 1007 and 1012 A.D. for the last of the Atonian dynasty of Holy Roman Emperors. The illustration from page 11 is an illumination from the Four Gospels, produced in Armenia around 1495 A.D. And from Layman's Lexicon, words and phrases of interest are creation, crucifixion, ecumenical councils, incarnation, marriage, miracles, resurrection, and synoptic gospels. In the beliefs of the Anglican Church, the Nicene Creed is discussed on pages 10 to 34 and the sacraments on pages 66 to 75. Finally, there's Father Ron's blog, using links at the top and the bottom of each page. Entries usually include an illustration. The direct URL address is www.anglicaninternetchurch.net right slash blog with blog in all lowercase letters. By clicking on the Follow Anglican Internet Church legend in the right-hand column and afterward entering your email address, you can receive notice of each new posting from our site host, wordpress.com. Please be assured that we do not share information with any other organization. Thank you for joining me for episode 26. Next time in episode 27, I will discuss the significance of the opening words in John 1, 1 1-5, and then explore what St. John tells us of the role of John the Baptist and of his teachings. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.